Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. Pixel 6 Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift. If this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. On Pixel Sift, we speak to some of the creative minds behind video games and interactive experiences from all around the world. We find out what it actually takes to make those experiences that you love. My name is Gianni, Gianni and joining me for this episode is Mitch. Hi, Mitch. Hello, Gianni. Me. Gianni. Me. <laughs> In this episode, uh, which is episode 171, joining us is Anna Barham and Sam Barham from Aotearoa, New Zealand's Balancing Monkey Games. Kia ora to you both. Hello. Hello, hello. We can't wait to yeah. find more about your, your game, uh, which is, uh, before we leave, a non-violent strategy game which is just released on Steam. So let's jump in. Hey there, if you're enjoying the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to Pixel Sift on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, or listen on pixelsift.com.au. See you there. Before we leave is a strategy game. It is uh, It made its debut on the Epic Game Store. It's now made its way onto the Steam Store. Uh, it is uh, a game where you uh, emerge from the depths uh, into a world and, and see what you can do uh, with what, you, what has been left behind. Um, Anna and Sam, for people who haven't come across the game before, how would you describe it? What sort of game is it? So it's a city building game. Um, it's closest in inspiration to the game's um, settlers and the Anno Zeros and the Anno 1800 and so on, um, but with its own twist. And I usually actually describe it, describe it as mostly non-violent because there's a few things that you could call violence, I guess. What are those twists uh, that you've put into the game uh, that sort of differentiate it from some of those other type of games we may have played? Um, I guess the, the, the first thing is it's set on a series of planets built from hexagons. Um, and for any maths nerds listening, yes, there are pentagons as well. We just hide them. We get that asked that question a lot. Uh, so it's set on a series of islands on planets, and you explore this little solar system of, of planets. Um, and it's, it's set, uh, technically it's post-apocalyptic. It's set after a disaster forced all your people, your peeps, underground, and they just re-emerging, but they're emerging into a world that's kind of swept clean. So it's not guns and monsters and mutants, it's grass and trees and um, animals wandering around kind of thing. And rusting hulks of ancient machinery and the occasional yeah. surprise. Yes. Um, the post-apocalyptic genre obviously is so broad. We can have things, as you mentioned there, like Fallout and uh, games like Horizon Zero Dawn, which have rusting metal hulks and things like that as well. Can you tell me about what part of that particular genre did you want to include and what things did you want to stay away from for your game? To be perfectly honest, we didn't. I didn't really think about the post-apocalyptic genre. That's just kind of how it wound up as we, as we built this thing and designed it. Um, 
the main thing that we left out, of course, is um, the violence that most post-apocalyptic games have um, to make it as close to non-violent as we could. Um, but other than that, it was it was sort of a yeah just a thing that evolved as we were going rather than a um, a conscious decision to make it post-apocalyptic. In a way, one of the things that's really important to us is um, environmental concerns. Mm. Um, and uh, now someone wrote about us recently talking about how we're kind of avoiding the, the colonialism aspect that you get with a lot of these games. You know, being New Zealanders, we're really familiar with um, colonialism and being white New Zealanders, Pākehā New Zealanders, it's something we want to, it's quite cringy, you know. Um, <laughs> so in a way, having it post-apocalyptic means that we're rediscovering something that was once ours before. We're not taking over something mm. that we've taken from another group of people or from an, um, the, the kind of raw nature. It's something that we did once used to, to own and look after and we're just rediscovering what we've lost. So in a way, it's kind of a way of, of reducing that colonialist tendencies that you get in a lot of these games. And um, can you tell me a bit about this world that uh, you've created? Um, what are some of the things in it that you uh, have loved players been able to discover as they play through? And what sort of things um, do you hope that they will be able to get out of it when they are building, rebuilding their worlds? One of my favourite things is when you send... So when you, when you start the game, you can only see a small amount of the planet. And so you've got these hexagons kind of floating in space um, with kind of nothingness around them. And as you send your ships out to explore, um, the the tiles, the little hexagon tiles, come out from the centre of the planet and go pop, 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 up all around you. And it's just beautiful. And in the meantime, the sun is shining through this planet full of holes where you haven't explored. And it's just visually, it's just so pretty. Yeah. <laughs> um, I quite like the – so the, the – what – Part of the challenge of the game, you know, there's the sort of the economic challenges of moving resources around where they need to go and how do I construct the buildings I want and so on. Um, but there's also things that do threaten your colonies. Um, and the main one of those is um, giant space whales that eat planets. Um, and I love the reactions we get on Discord and on forums and stuff from people going, oh, I saw a face space whale for the first time and it was freaky and scared me and stuff. And I quite like that. The, the, in a, in a the music, the music that announces that a space whale is coming terrifies the pants off me whenever I hear it. <laughs> like a Pavlov's dog response or something, it comes in. You just get a <laughs> cold sweat as it goes through. Um, what? How do you balance, I guess, the challenge with uh, making a game where, where some of the elements of a strategy game, games that pe games that people may have played before, um, have been changed or been removed? What are some of the driving forces that you want to keep pulling the player along and, and getting them to play a little bit longer, one more turn? Um, it's definitely a challenge. Um, take, taking a, a genre, an established genre like, I mean, even like this particular subset of city builders, and trying to take out an element um, is is not easy, and I definitely definitely struggled with it a bit um, while while we were making the game. In a sense, we've the kind of core driving mechanic, the thing that you are seeking to to maximise and working towards, is the happiness of your citizens, your peace, hmm. happiness. So you've got happiness bonuses and debuffs yep. from various things, and so in a sense, we've we've made that the the kind of core focus. Um, and also just generally 
making it pretty and getting all the, the tech opened up and stuff like that. We've got some some insanely dedicated people in our community who just we the the pictures that they post of what they've put together are just stunning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, it's definitely been a real challenge to to work through that. Sorry, we've just had a, a another um, studio member's just walked in the door and he's sneaking to his chair behind <laughs> us. So. <laughs> Give us a wave while we're there in the background. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you, you nailed it. Um, so part of what we did is rather than worry about taking a piece out and how do we replace that, it's just focus on the things that are there, the things that are there because that is what we want to be the core of the game. So, you know, I, I love these games because I love just watching all these little people scurrying around doing their jobs and stuff. Um, so that's even though it's not necessarily a gameplay thing, it's kind of a core part of the experience of just having this little, you know, um, ant farm of buildings and people scurrying around doing stuff. Mm. Um, and, yeah, things like that is, is an important part of it. Is there a legacy of, of board game design in this game as well? Because my initial look at it is like the hex placing games that you go and, and, and obviously that is a similar sort of thing. But how, how does that sort of factor into how this has been made? As I was designing it, I mean, I, I love playing board games. Um, much more so than she does. <laughs> I'm um, a word game person myself. Yeah. He's a board gamer. Yeah. Um, but at various points through the design process, I was seriously considering trying to make it feel much, even more like you're actually playing a board game inside the computer um, and sort of ended up settling on this thing where you can you can see the inspiration without it being this sort of, obvious it is actually a board game in the computer um, but yeah it's very strongly um, influenced by um, Settlers of Catan and all sorts of other games yeah. yeah did you make a paper prototype when you were actually designing the systems in the game so did it actually be a board game at any point no, he has tried making paper board games including paper board games using hexagon tiles yeah. so um, but none of the family was willing to try it out with him so it didn't go very far Although, if you actually, if you have a look over at our Twitter today, um, our um, community and social media manager has just posted a, a tweet um, where we found in the archives this shot of a drawing that Sam had done, a, a very rough sketch of this kind of hexagon-based thing. So yep. um, First you, you can see that the paper conception of it there. Yeah. <laughs> You touched on this a little bit before, but you, you sort of hinted about the community that's built up around this game and seeing how people have played it and, and the things that they are designing and building. Um, can you tell me a bit about how that community has formed and what you do uh, to kind of uh, keep those people engaged and, and you know, in, in, in keep creating amazing and cool things? Yeah. Um, there was actually something that we worked on really hard um, back when we first announced the game a couple of years ago now. Um, was I had I'd seen some advice. Oh, that's right. I'd been lucky enough to go to GDC and I went to a talk by Mike Rose, um, and he was talking about how they set up Discord servers for their games. Um, is it No More Robots as publishing label? Anyway, um, and I'd, I'd had advice from someone as well saying that. Um, these days, the most important thing for selling your game is having a community built around it, um, you know, because you get the, the word of mouth and, and everything else. So I was like, okay, we need to build a community. Um, and so on the day when we announced the game, we had our launch trailer out. We had, um, you know, 
PR had done its job and we'd got um, articles and a bunch of press websites and all the rest of it. We had a Discord server ready to go. And the most important thing there was we had an idle game built into the Discord server, um, which meant you could come along and as soon as you arrived in this community, it wasn't like, this is a nice community, I'll watch for a bit and then leave again. It was, here's a game to play. And not only a game, a game that requires you to come back every hour or two to keep doing your thing. Um, and that meant that we got a huge amount of really good retention of people sticking around, even though there was nothing to play yet, it had only just been announced. Um, you know, that, that community grew by thousands very, very quickly um, because there was something to do. Yeah. And then um, we were also very careful with our moderation. Uh, we basically, we wielded a very large ban hammer. Um, if anyone came along and was being problematic, we, we didn't bother. We was just like, no, nah, you're just gone. Um, because we knew the nature of this game, you know, we didn't want the community to devolve into a toxicity. Um, because of the kind of game we were making, it just wouldn't fit. And I think those two there, we wound up with this really lovely, nice, large community of people um, looking out for the game. And that was that was kind of where it started from. Was it difficult to balance the your energy between... Uh, managing the community and building your game? We hired someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, she's been amazing. Emily, our community manager, does an yeah. incredible job and we, we hired her. When did we hire her? Was it? It was after the, that announcement. So initially it was a bit of a challenge because it was just me doing it. Mm. Um, but before it got really big, we brought Emily in and she's been yeah, doing an amazing job helping us out with that. Are there any traps that you can fall into when making, uh, I guess, trying to build that community? Anything that you could accidentally let slip, perhaps, that may potentially cause like a, a negative impact down the track? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everybody's human, right? You're always going to, there's always going to be mistakes and slip ups. Yeah. And there's been times where we've got things wrong yeah. um, and I've had to go back and apologise. But I mean, it's, a, it's a bit like parenting, you know. You, you make a mistake and then you set a good example in how you deal with that, mm. and that also feeds into the community. So that's my attitude on it anyway. Yeah. Um, can you tell me, you launched on the Epic Game Store and then picked up a partnership with Team17 in order to bring it to Steam. Um, what did that partnership mean to you as a development studio making your first game? It made our numbers go whoosh! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And, uh, we we were actually approached by Team Seventeen, which was just absolutely mind blowing, mm. especially to Sam. You know, we played Worms back in the day. We've got moving out, and to have the Game Scout from Team Seventeen come to us and say, "Hey, I've played your game. I really love it. I really, really love it. We really want your game." And this was what a month before it was due to launch on yeah, Steam. Yeah, six weeks. Something like that. So it was. It, it, it completely blew our minds um, mm. that, that somebody of that calibre wanted to be involved with us. Yeah. And then they've worked so hard and done such an amazing job that our Steam release went just firecrackers. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's made an enormous difference to us. People might not be aware exactly what the nuts and bolts is of, of someone like Team17 um, being involved with an indie game. What, what, ex what exactly do they do to help you get these numbers? So, I mean, 
a large part of it is simply that they have the contacts and the experience built up over, in their case, decades. Mm. Um, so, you know, if, if we were to send out a press release, a lot of people would be like, who's this? Don't yeah. care. Team 17 send out a press release, people take notice. That's right. Um, and, and they've got, they've the, got the, like the, the budget and yeah. the experience and the know-how to go to streamers and say, you know, do you want to do a sponsored stream of this game for us? Here's some money. Yeah. They, they can put budgets into ads. So, you know, we had people say, hey, I saw an ad for your game on YouTube, and we were like, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and also, you know, all of their socials and everything that they're, they're going out to, they've already got this following of, of mm. hundreds of thousands of, or millions of people mm. um, that we haven't had to build up ourselves organically. They've got that. So it's just a vastly wider audience. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of launching on the Epic Game Store? Because obviously that was a um, a, a new platform. Uh, Epic is obviously very excited to get as many people into that as well. Can you tell me what it felt like uh, and how that sort of process went for people who may be thinking about that uh, for their first game? Um, it, it was super smooth. It was wonderful. Um, the I mean the you know the back end was great. The people were lovely to work with. Um, yeah, was, they were really responsive and easy to deal yeah, with. Yeah, it was yeah. good. Um, I think we got, you know, there is, there is of course, all the some hate of Epic out on the internet. Um, I think we got lucky there as well. Um, when we announced we were moving to Epic, the, that initial um, fury had subsided a bit. And also because we'd put the work in building this community of people that weren't jerks, um, <laughs> then when we announced it, you know, we had some people that had their concerns and that was fine. Um, yeah. You know, we expected that it was fine. We talked it through. Some people decided they didn't want to buy the game yet, and that was fine. And other people were like, yeah, cool. Um, and, yeah, it was really good. I think in some ways being on a, on a smaller store is great because we can – there was more chance of us getting onto the front page. Um, and you can tell from the numbers. If you're on the front page of your store, your sales go up hugely. But if you're off the front page of the store, sales go down. Um, and being on Epic, getting onto that front page was um, was easier. So that was really that was really helpful. Yeah. How did you? Um, so the people that had you had dedicated you had dedicated people following your game and had some concerns about the Epic Store, which I'm sure were quite strong. How did you kind of talk to them? And what do you say to what do you say to someone that's really concerned about something like a marketplace um, regarding your game? I think the the first thing that our, our CM and Sam, like, I don't do a lot of this, but these guys are really, really good at It's just understanding that there's a human being behind the other side of the keyboard hmm. um, yep. and talking to them like human beings, you know. Um, and for us, we made the decision because we needed, essentially we needed the financial security as a, a small team with a family to look after. You know, we've got kids. Um, we want to be able to pay our employees and know that we're going to be able to keep employing them hmm. and um you know people people are mostly reasonable when we just talk in a yeah. reasonable open way i'd like to know what's changed in the time since coming back and, and founding your own studio what, what are some of the biggest things that you now think about that everyone go oh man i wish everyone knew this if they were going to start their own studio and make their own first game what are some of those things that have come for you i don't know i mean the, the biggest difference for me i guess is up until now i'd always worked for someone um you know, I've been a software developer for 22 years now. Um, and up until I um, 
became, you know, got the chance of becoming full-time working on before we leave. I'd always had, always had a day job um, working for other companies in Dunedin. So I think, yeah, the biggest change for me was just becoming self-employed, being the boss these days, having employees. Um, that's a That was a huge change. Uh, and I was I was really worried that you know working from home by myself would be hard. Um, luckily, it wasn't <laughs> for me. <laughs> other other people would struggle. What I've seen and what I think Sam's brought to this, which is one of the the real reasons why this company is so successful, is that Sam you know once he he received attention and received investment to be able to work full time on this and quit his day job, he then treated this project as a day job. Mm. He was working from home, but every morning he would get up, get dressed, get shaved to go into the study, 8 a.m. every morning, and he started work. Um, and that was his job, and that's how he treated it. One of the other first things that he did was he set up a, um, a Slack with other game developers in New Zealand um, who were working in similar circumstances, and they would have daily stand-ups, um, just as he'd done it as previous um, companies. So he just treated it like a day job Mm, Um, and I think that's one of the huge things that he didn't treat it like something that he would do when he felt like it this was his job and that's how he worked at it and And there were there were days where I was like oh my gosh the creative journey sucks I want to give up but it was my day job someone had put money in I wasn't going to let them down and I just had to push through what did your days look like uh, when you were planning those days? It sounds like you had a regimented plan of what you were doing, but, you know, what sort of things were involved in those early stages and then what were you able to hand off as the team sort of expanded? I've never been a super structured programmer. Um, The structure has always been sort of forced on me by my, you know, the company I work for or whatever. Um, So, I mean, I'd I'd have a list in – I use Trello – um, and I'd have a list of all the tasks I wanted to complete and, you know, break them down into small pieces and then just sort of pick and choose. I'd usually try and sort of make a list of the things I want to do next, um, you know, a week's worth or whatever, and then just churn through those more or less as I felt like it. Um, and then we we got, um, the same time we got Emily, the community manager, we got Isaac, who's sitting there, um, as our second programmer and technical artist. Um it was pretty incredible. He's got a, a fine arts degree in photography. So as soon as he arrived, he said things like, if we change the exposure settings, it'll look better. And I went, I know some of those words. Go ahead. <laughs> um, and he changed the exposure settings and it did look better. Um, so being able to sort of bring people in and I think that one of the important things with hiring people is you, you try and find someone that has the skills you think you need but then you hire someone and you go, okay, now we fight, figure out what skills you actually have and what things do we hand off to you and what things do we not and so on. So with both with Emily and with Isaac, it was like, okay, we've hired you because we, you seem like the right person. Now let's figure out between us which are the things that go to you or stay with me or, or whatever. Um, and that's been really powerful is just finding, you know, I guess we got a bit lucky finding people that fit in right and had the skills that we needed. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about what your day looks like as the managing director of Balancing Monkey? Um, well, I'm I work part time. Um, I only came into the position um, in September last year after mm. my previous job was managing a medical centre, um, which was insane during the pandemic. 
So I was quite glad to have the excuse to leave. Um, being such a small company, I kind of wear a lot of, of hats and do a lot of like little bits of things. Um, so, you know, my, my main kind of core jobs are to pay the wages, pay the bills, um, make sure that those kind of basic day-to-day -day things are happening, look after our staff and make sure that they're being well looked after, that they're, um, they're happy um, and comfortable and stuff. Um, I'm also the one who asks the big picture questions. Um, like, you guys are, yes, you've chosen this thing that you want to do. What impact is that actually going to have on the game in terms of sales? Um, or um, is it going to make a difference? Mm. That it, enough of a difference that it's worth putting the money in. And, um, you know, at the moment I'm also looking at things like uh, merch and whether we want to get into that and if so, what kinds and how to do that sustainably. And um, I also recently booked us all on a company retreat because we worked so hard we need a break. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, kind of bits and pieces as needed. Um, what I'm not very good at is the, the kind of detailed, nitty-gritty plan. So we could probably use somebody to help us out with that. But, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm the, the big picture and the payroll. Sounds like very reactive as well. So things would come up and you'd be kind of going like, do you, do you structure your day in any way or is it more like here are the list of tasks I need to complete? Um, I'm even less structured than Sam is. So uh, I really love being able to make my own hours. I rock up when I've had enough of being at home and <laughs> get through the stuff that needs to be done and check in with people and, yeah, just go with the flow. Mm. I really like that. Um, but it probably won't be sustainable as the company grows, let's put it that way. Well, I guess what is the biggest lesson uh, for you both uh, that you wish you knew, something that you learnt along the way, but you wish you knew when you were starting out on this project? Oh, um, the, so I, it's not quite what you asked, but the, the advice that I've given to other people in the past that I learned was if you want to do game development as a job, so some people, it's a hobby, they make games, they're never actually intending to release, and that's fine, do it, it's cool. If you're wanting to make it a job, recognise that game development involves all sorts of things that you're no good at. In my case, there's no way I'm ever going to do PR or art or music. It's just, just don't even bother trying. Um, so recognise that, don't try and be cute about it, find someone who can do it. Um, at the same time, sometimes there are things that you have no choice, you have to do. Um, recognise that and do the work to learn it. So um, I found a bunch, like an online video conference called Pro Indie Dev, which was a bunch of established um, indie developers, successful ones, not talking about how to write the latest shader or anything, but about how do you make indie games as a sustainable business? How do you be successful in this mm. um, and I just learned as much of that as I could because I had to do the business stuff and the planning stuff and all these sorts of things that I hadn't had to do before and so I just I had to learn it there was no choice if I wanted this to be a job. Mm. One of the things that um, I am coming to realise again not so much that I that I wish I'd known sooner but I'm really delighted to discover it's just how many different roles there are connected with the game industry mm. um, and how many different kinds of people um, it takes. Um, like 
I'd never heard of community manager until we employed one. Um, I, I had no idea about, you know, streamers and content creators and kind of the amount that they do and, and the value of their work and, um, and how many different kind of artists you need and how many different kind of audio type stuff mm. and what goes into that. And I still know nothing about game design and there's just so much and so many things to it. It's, it's a really complex and interesting industry. There's just, I love it. <laughs> You sort of touched on it a little bit there, but um, what is the moment that gave you real delight, which you thought, this is the reason why we're doing this? Um, I think I have that at least once or twice a week. Anytime I'm playing the game to test it and like scrolling around the planet and go, man, these planets are pretty. Um, yeah, yeah I, I get that about once or twice a week at least still. For me, um, I absolutely love getting feedback from gamers. Mm. Um, especially stuff like someone who, who sent us a message saying, I was going through a really hard time and this game helped me with my grief. And we were like, oh, my gosh, that's so lovely. You know? um, so, yeah, and, and the other thing that, that I just uh, – um, Emily put together for us a, a little video of showing how the game had grown over time you know, from its first beginnings to what it is now. And every time I watch that trailer, I sit and watch the whole thing because I'm so proud of how much we've achieved with such a small team in such a short time. I'm just mm. blown away by it. That's just it's made me smile. I really like hearing that. That's really, really great. Um, that's pretty much all the time we have. Um, thank you so much for being so generous with your, with your time and telling us about... Uh, how you made uh, before we leave um, if people are interested in playing it uh, they can pick it up now on steam it's just come out um, or of course go to the epic game store to try it out there um, or head to balancingmonkeygames.com if you want to find out more about it there uh, anna and sam thank you so much really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us thank you thanks it's a pleasure thank you Pixel Sift is produced by Fiona Bartholomeus, Sarah Island, Daniel Ang, Adam Christou. Uh, Mitchell Lowe is our senior producer. My name is Gianni Di Giovanni and I'm the executive producer. As always, we'll be putting links to everything we talked about in the show notes. Maybe we'll put a link into that uh, paper hex version that was tweeted out. So if people are curious about what it looked like in the very early stages, you can see that by going to the show notes of this episode in your podcast player or heading to our website, which is pixelsift.com.au. You can also come and join us on our Discord. We don't have any uh, we don't have any cute game on ours, but we do have a community of people that like to talk about the things they create. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can, of course, share your creative work, talk about topics and games and anything else. That's pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. And if you like what we do, can we please ask a favor? We need your help to share the show. So tell a friend, subscribe your brothers and sisters, and start someone's journey into podcasts because we know that getting started is tricky but once you're in you'll love it too much to leave next week we'll be back with pixel sift plays where we check out some of the independent video games and all sorts of other things that we play on a, on a thursday evening uh, you can join us on twitch.tv forward slash pixel sift and sam thank you so much appreciate it and go check out before we leave thank you bye
Did you know that the original Final Fantasy creator, Hironobu Sakaguchi, made a spiritual successor to that legendary series called Fantasian for Apple Arcade, and every level in the game is a handmade, physical miniature model. Enjoy unlimited access to over 200 incredibly fun games with no ads and no in-app purchases. From puzzle and adventure games to sports, racing, and multiplayer action games, everyone can count on finding something to love. Head to sifter.com.au forward slash arcade to start your free trial of Apple Arcade today at sifter.com.au forward slash arcade for a one month free trial of Apple Arcade and you'll be supporting independent video games journalism. This offer is for new subscribers only $9.99 a month after free trial. Plan automatically renews after trial until cancelled. 